The Energy Gang is brought to you by Huawei Technologies. From devices to telecom infrastructure to cloud computing and convergence solutions, Huawei is rethinking every link in the IT chain to deliver a better future faster. Huawei is now offering its Fusion Solar PV solution, a unique approach to integrating, optimizing, and digitizing solar power plants. See how to improve your solar project at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. For the week of December 11th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In this episode, we're talking careers in clean tech, how to find one and how to build one. Then is Abengoa about to go bankrupt? Spain's biggest renewable energy developer is in dire straits. Lastly, an overview of the final hours of the Paris Climate Talks, which now have been extended into the final day. In Washington, I'm Stephen Lacey, your MC and a senior editor with Green Tech Media. Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions is also in Washington. Hey, Catherine, how are you? I'm doing great. I was this week in Boston at the ACEEE's Intelligent Efficiency Conference. It was great. So I'm glad to, glad to be back in D.C., but it was fun. We did a live podcast there last year. We did. We did. This is their second year of the conference, and it, it looked like it was even more successful. Jigger Shaw of Generate Capital is in New York City. It's been a while since we've gotten you outside of New York, Jigger. I know. Well, you know, with, uh, with the little one, I'm uh, trying to travel a lot less. I'm waiting for the day that we catch you in like a frozen yogurt shop or at daycare or something. <laughs> that's that's definitely coming in 2016, I'm sure. Right. I'm trying to get a handle on this more predictable jigger. <laughs> Time to talk careers. Down in Naples, Florida is our guest, Don Zarilla. Don is the founder of Gaia Human Capital Consultants, an executive search firm devoted to environmental and clean tech-focused corporations venture firms, and nonprofits. She's helped companies like Recurrent, AES, and Enernoc find people to fill executive positions. Dawn's got 20 years of experience in this area, and before starting her own firm, she was VP at one of the top talent search firms in the U.S. Dawn, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, everyone. I'm hoping you can answer a question, a burning question for me. Do yes. you prefer talent acquisition or headhunting? Uh, you know, talent acquisition <clears throat> or executive mm -hmm. search consulting. Headhunting is traditionally a little bit jure. Um, I, I've had actually attorneys call me head headhunter, and I've then uh, spun around and called them ambulance chasers, <laughs> and they kind of got that. Yeah. I'll avoid that term then today. Whatever okay. you decide to call yourself, the mission <laughs> is the same. Find and recruit the best talent in the industry. And, and today we're going to ask what talent companies are looking for and how to build it for people who are developing their careers. One of the most common questions I get from listeners and from readers is where to start looking for a job in clean tech or how to move up into a higher position. And it was only a matter of time before we covered this on the show. I think it's long overdue. I'd like to break this conversation into two parts. Part one for people earlier in their careers or for those in school who just want to know where the opportunities are or if they should be doing anything special. Part two is kind of for the people who are more established in their careers. These are the folks that you obviously work with most, Don. And I'll start with the request I get asked the most. Tell me everything I need to know about how to get a job in this industry. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no. Well, we get that vague question a lot. So let's yeah. get into the details. Uh, education, I think, is a good place to start. 
People often ask, should I go into a renewable energy-specific program? Should I get an engineering or business degree that might not be energy-specific? So when you think about the candidates you're working with later in their careers, do they need to have that specialization in energy, or are there a lot of different things that people can be looking at? Great question. Excellent question. As the industry matures, when I say the industry, I'm talking about all of the different segments of the industry there is a need for increasing specialization. My sense has been, at least for me, even today, that we're still getting 20 resumes for every one job opening. So there does seem to be a lot of people who want to work in our industry. And so, you know, we still have a pretty high bar for folks who are not just smart, but also interested, right? So a lot of the folks that I, you know, hire have previous experience in renewable energy. They did an independent thesis in college on the subject. They, you know, actually actively worked in the field during summer internships. Or are you sort of seeing just the generally smart people who have no interest in, you know, renewable energy on their resume also getting an opportunity? I think the first thing we see are folks that have identified why this is important to do this. Whether you are CEO or a senior manager or a director or even someone coming out of school, the question is, why is this space important to you? In fact, I would say that as we recruit anyone at any organizational level across all tiers of an organization, people need to understand why it's important that we have this space in the first place. So so basically you're saying that the best candidates are going to have some sort of vision. Not just vision, but again, a core value of why it's important. John, I am, young people reach out to me all the time. I probably have coffee once a week with a young person. And um, the first thing I say, you know, they, I know they're passionate about this. That is that is very obvious to me. And they love renewables. They love energy efficiency. But often they are not focused. It's, you know, I'll say, what is your goal? What do you mm-hmm. want to do? And where are you willing to work to get experience? And sometimes I feel like, um, young people skip that step and, and all often they'll sit down and they say, well, I just want to be you. I'm like, no, no. Right, right. right. <laughs> it, it was a long and winding and torturous path to where I am now. And so, you know, like, let's take some baby steps if you're a young person and figure out, like, what's your immediate goal? How do you approach young people? Mm. You know, I get asked that all the time as well. Today, there are increasingly college and universities that are offering sustainability-focused engineering and business programs. Uh, By the way, a great source for those listening is the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education. It's a great portal, and these programs are designed to provide students with all the technical project management and other necessary skills that they need to maybe establish or advance their career. I I always encourage folks to learn as much as they can about the space. But then, lo and behold, it's going to come down to their own personal drive, their own personal commitment, their own personal focus. So, I mean, we just hired um, a talent uh, acquisition group uh, to hire uh, entry-level folks. I mean, financial Mm -hmm. analysts and, um, uh, and associates for Generate Capital. And... I mean, what's interesting to me is how many of the candidates were just smart, but Mm -hmm. had never really educated themselves on the basics within our industry. 
Um, and, and some of them actually had, right? Some of them actually understood the difference between project finance and corporate finance, or some of them understood the difference between, you know, a properly done spreadsheet and not, a, you know, and one that wasn't accurate. And, you know, I just think that there are some basic skills here that people really can learn um, yes. on their own, on their own time, um, it, to show their seriousness about, you know, the industry. I also, you know, there are a lot of folks who can keep themselves relevant. I come from this communications side, right? So there are a lot of people who want to establish some sort of voice. And if you don't have a job yet, there are other ways, aside from developing some of those uh, important skills, to keep yourself relevant and out there. One is to set up some sort of blog and to try to do some level of analysis. It gives you an excuse to talk to people and maybe do some interviews. And if you're a good writer, uh, you, or at least a mediocre writer, you can develop your writing skills, develop your s- skills in talking to people, and then use that communications outlet as a way to get better at figuring out what's going on in the industry and maybe figure out where you want to go. Um, I think yeah. that's really helpful for a lot of people, and it's helped a ton of people get jobs in other areas. I mean, there are myriad stories of people who have just kept themselves relevant by engaging in some sort of communications and writing effort. And I think that's a a crucial one as well. And it just sort of helps you understand what's going on in the industry. The other thing I like to tell them is listen to this podcast. Yes, indeed. (laughs) You know, you know, Stephen, it's ironic. Um, My own background is across the board, everything, including Wall Street, when I came out of school. And when I started Gaia Human Capital Consultants, I decided to compete with some of the very major search firms. What did I do? I looked for a vehicle to try to become a thought leader. And I began to utilize another skill set that I enjoy, and that's writing. And you know firsthand, I began writing for a major publication in this space. And with that came a great deal of not only notoriety, but frankly, business. Trying to establish what I'm trying to talk about here, which is credibility, by asking good questions, learning how to follow up with people learning who the influence makers are in them being hired, let alone expressing interest, learning a lot about a company, learning about some of the work they've done, the projects, their technology, the people, what kind of turns them on, the corporate culture, the core values of that company. This is how people find jobs, particularly at the more entry level. It's such a good point because you're not going to just develop those skills by continuing to send in your resume. You've got to show that you're searching and working toward those skills on your own time too, whether it be like working on how to – you know, evaluate a financial deal or just do basic spreadsheeting or make your networking and volunteering at a conference. If you want to get into the storage industry and you don't have any good connections, maybe volunteer at a relevant uh, conference and go and meet people and listen to sessions and, you know, show an employer that you're doing this on your own time because you're truly interested in developing those skills. Often um, young people say, oh, I want to do public policy. I want to, you know, I want to be in that space. And I say, well, you need to do something first. So you'll understand how to use public policy because public policy is about growing a business or a technology. So go and work for the business, go and do your work, go work for a business or a technology company and learn what this is before you try to get into sort of this overarching policy sphere. The willingness to learn, to recognize and assimilate information and applying it accordingly, basically solving the needs of an organization. 
So I have a question for you, Don, and then Jigger yes. and Catherine, I want you to answer this as well. Does a postgraduate degree matter? Education is its own form of currency. A lot of people think that you need to get as high up in education as possible in order to get a good job. There's plenty of experience uh, to the contrary. And I reached out on Twitter and asked some folks if they wanted to get some questions in here. And a number of people asked me that. Right. You know, I it really depends on a few things. And one of there's always that opportunity cost, first of all. It depends on the individual, if they're willing to sacrifice the time it takes to get that degree. And everyone, again, has its very situational question. However, you don't become a lawyer unless you go to law school, which, of course, is a postgraduate degree. We need engineers. We need MBAs. We need people. We need accountants. We need CPAs. We need advanced technology IT folks. So to answer that question, I'm going to say that in any technical field, in any search I've ever worked on, it's always been a college degree, yes. A master's degree would be a plus. Think of 2.0 Wall Street. Years ago, if you had a college degree, you'd go work for Wall Street. And if you had any drive at all, you might actually someday become a managing director. Even without a college degree, many of these folks, there are some great stories, particularly capital markets traders, well, now the schools start graduating uh, business degree programs. We've got top MBA schools in the country all competing for those jobs. That increased competition obviously draws people with advanced degrees. And as we get more and more sophisticated, as the talent pool increasingly becomes competitive, yes, I think clean tech is going to say to get this particular job, we'd prefer that you had a degree. I mean, pretty much everyone I've hired has been without a master's degree. Um, many of the folks went to do an MBA afterwards, but they knew what they were doing and knew what they wanted, what skills they wanted to fill in. They wanted to do better spreadsheet analysis, better financial analysis, whatever it is. Um, if you go to a top 10 MBA school, you know, Harvard Business School, et cetera, then people recruit you, right? I mean, a lot of the yes. people in Sun Edison's um, you know, um, uh, executive program come out of the Ivy League in the top 10 MBA programs. But I absolutely think that if you, if you go straight through and get an, an MBA, it sort of works against you, particularly because your salary expectations are so high that you end up being overqualified for a lot of the entry-level positions that you should be applying for. A lot of those schools, one of the powerful, most powerful things are the, are the networks that they have. So I think whether you're going through Harvard Business School or whatever you're going through, building your network is so important and making sure that you don't burn any bridges, that you don't make any – try really hard not to make any enemies out there and not to – you know, always, always – this is my goal is to always try to be nice to everybody. Um, not always easy. But, but I mean, yeah, Catherine, bridges, where, where were you when I needed that advice? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I started working in wind as well as in um, fuel cells and advanced technologies um, before I got my MBA. And then I went to, to get my MBA for very specific reasons. I knew exactly what I wanted. I went to a top 30 school. I went to the University of Maryland, Robert School, Smith School of Business, which I loved. But it wasn't a top 10 school. And so, you know, I wasn't getting recruited straight out of MBA school, I ended up getting a great job with BP Solar and, you know, went from there. But I, but I do think that folks who come to me that went straight from undergrad to an MBA, um, I'm basically prepared to pay them the same as I would have paid them right out of undergrad. So it, it doesn't mm. really help them to do that. And I, I would venture to say you're 
you're right about that. I think basically we say, here's the budget. Be nice if they had it. But I don't see a premium for many of these positions. I do see a premium, though, however, for folks who are professional engineers, for folks who are certified in a very specialized area. That's the premium. But I don't see the distinction between the the bachelor's degree and and a master's program. Before we go on to people that are like in the later stages of their career, either trying to make a switch into clean tech or just working their way up into the executive level, I'm cur- I have one more question. And Jigger, I want to ask you this first, and then Don, you can answer this if you want. Uh, what should the vetting process be like for these companies? It's it's a crazy world out there. These even the largest companies we know one day that seem invincible are vulnerable to dramatic swings in investor sentiment or demand. And Sun Edison obviously comes to mind as a company that once felt really solid, but now feels very fragile and layoffs there have been pretty deep. So Jigger, how should someone assess a potential employer when this space is still so volatile? Well, I think it depends on where you are in your career. I certainly, you know, get hit up by people who are recent college graduates as well as folks who were making career transitions, um, who are, you know, a little later in their career. Uh, you know, I certainly think that the advice is more relevant to the folks who are later in their career who, you know, have responsibilities and they don't want to jump ship to a company that's going to go out of business a year later. Um, the one thing I say to people is that, you know, they definitely need to do their homework. Um, you know, a lot of, you're either in a position financially to take the kind of risks that come with, um, a company that only has 12 months worth of cash, left in their in their runway and it's totally acceptable to ask a company how much you know cash they have and whether they and how much runway they have um separately i think that you know folks need to go into something understanding that this is a risk reward equation right so there's a lot of folks who come to me and say well i'm not really prepared to take a lot of risk so what i'd love is someone who pays me $250,000 a year plus gives me like 4% of the company so i can get the upside and I keep telling them that's an impossibility. No one does that. So if you go to a place that will be willing to pay you a full salary, then that person's going to give you 0.01% of the company in stock options. Um, and if you're willing to take a huge haircut in your salary and thereby taking risk with a young company, then you can get more stock. But it's, it's sort of a, you know, it, it, it's either one or the other. You don't get both. Don, what are the responsible questions that potential employees should be asking when they're getting recruited? And what is your responsibility in communicating those risks? Do you do you have any role to play there? Or is that just purely between the employer and the employee? How does that work? I agree with Jacob. I think everyone has a right these days and should ask, um, what is your runway? Are you, you know, where are you today in your stage of commercialization? That's what most people want to know. You know, I've actually conducted searches where um, – for senior people as well, where there was no salary. So imagine getting a phone call from me saying, hi, here it is, CFO of a company, great big promising company. Let me ask you something though. Could you work without getting paid? It's a very difficult search to do, but there are people out there who are willing to take that career risk. And Jig is right. It's very rare to find that company that'll pay you a base of 250, 300 plus 4% of the, uh, the firm. These jobs do exist, by the way, but they're just much more rare. So I think, an organi- I think a candidate needs to look at him or herself and say, how entrepreneurial do I feel? And in doing so, they're able to really look at themselves 
and have a more complete self-awareness of what's going to make them more whole in their personal life and in their professional life, obviously. For the folks you're recruiting, how often are you looking at qualified individuals who are outside the clean tech industry, outside that specific focus of business? Uh, like, How common is it that people are moving from outside the clean tech sector inward? I'm going to say today, over 80% of the people that I recruit have had renewable energy experience. On the other hand, what about those other 20%? They tend to have very highly specialized technology or pretty close to that industry experience. Up until now, we've sort of discussed the responsibility of the people trying to get into the industry, the potential employees, and and I'd like to discuss the responsibility of the employer to wrap it up. Uh, Workforce diversity is crucial for every industry, particularly for renewables. We talk about the inclusiveness of renewable energy and you know, the employers need to make a real serious effort to reach out beyond their limited networks, you know, encourage uh, managers to look beyond their, their Rolodex and, you know, the people that they've worked with over the years. What should employers be doing to f- look in new areas for people outside their traditional networks? Um, and are they doing enough? I mean, I would answer the question, no, they're not doing enough, but what could they be doing more? Yeah, great question. And I don't think they are either, whether it be people of color, women, LGBT, veterans, etc. There needs to be some strategic initiatives. For example, employment branding. Employment branding, for example, talks about why this firm embraces diversity. The career track to basically communicate that message that we get it. Some of the other more strategic quasi-tactical approaches are networking, uh, getting involved with strategic alliances, attending meetings, getting out into the community, having community relations events, uh, while solar firms are out in different communities. Also, in essence, maybe having a little bucket there you know, for resumes. I've seen a lot of different creative things, or particularly with, with veterans. There's a tremendous pent-up demand right now. Um, from the veterans that want to get involved in the space, which, by the way, is another whole conversation. Uh, Folks that have gone to war, uh, that have been over there, um, I hear from them and they say, you know something, now I know why we're over there. I absolutely want to be involved in the clean technology business. But you're exactly right, Don. I get tons of veterans who come back and say, I've decided that I'm going to, you know, set my life course towards this new goal. I don't want to be, I don't want someone else fighting a royal. So they need to, uh, organizations need to incorporate these values in the firm. Like I said, they need to make it abundantly clear that during the recruiting process, the interviewing process, the hiring process, that they continue to seek out these types of candidates. And once the reputation develops, I think firms have a much easier chance of putting their money where the mouth is and acquiring diverse talent. Don Zarilla is the founder and managing partner of Gaia Human Capital Consultants. Don, thanks for joining us. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you as well. It's been a great pleasure. All right. Now is time to take a pause and mention our supporter, our sponsor, Huawei Technologies. Huawei is a leading global information and communications technology provider operating in 170 countries. Huawei's new product, 
Fusion Solar combines cutting-edge IT technologies and power electronics to digitize your solar power plant, optimize investment, reduce maintenance costs, increase power generation, and boost your rate of return with Huawei's Fusion Solar PV solution. Learn more at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. Huawei, building a connected world of endless possibilities. Yet another ambitious renewable energy developer is in trouble. This time it's the large Spanish firm Abengoa. Abengoa develops and owns solar, wind, biofuels, cogeneration, transmission, uh, and some conventional energy projects around the world. It also owns more than $9 billion in debt from those activities. In late November, the company failed to close a $370 million capital injection, and it is now trying to protect itself from bankruptcy by selling off a bunch of its renewable energy projects. The company owns a number of projects, including two concentrating solar power plants in Arizona and California, and those were supported by the Department of Energy. The usual suspects now are calling Abengoa the next Solyndra. Um, So Abengoa's problems are a political issue here in the U.S., but they're a much bigger one in Spain. We'll talk about the politics of this, but I guess I want to know what's next for Abengoa. Jigger... Any thoughts? I mean, are they going to, is someone going to come in and help them out? Or do you think they're going to have to file for bankruptcy? Yeah, probably both. I mean, I think that, I mean, just a little bit of context is probably good. So Abengoa is not a renewable energy company in the same way that, you know, the others that we cover are on the wind and solar side. I mean, Abengoa really likes to do complicated projects. So they like to do some solar, mostly concentrating, but then also cogeneration, desalinization plants, um, biofuels, and ethanol. Because Abengoa, at its core, is an engineering company, and you know the real problem with Abengoa is that when you look at their investments over time in projects, they really, they really like pick them so that they could feed more engineering hours to their people. And so when you look at the returns on investment on their invest on their projects. They've been abysmal. Almost all of them have underperformed. And that's why, you know, Abengoa is in the situation they're in today, because their projects themselves just, you know, had much lower returns than they expected because they were optimizing around the wrong thing. Does their model, both owning and operating these projects, complicate matters even more? They're not like a traditional developer. Many developers sell off the projects and just focus on the the EPC work. Abengoa likes to construct the projects themselves and then keep them in their portfolio and own them. Does that have any influence here? I don't know that they like to do that. I think that they were forced to do that. I think Abengoa in 2008, 2009, when it was doing the concentrating solar project in Arizona, realized that there really wasn't anyone else that was willing to spearhead these projects and then hire them to do the engineering work, that if they really wanted these projects to happen, they needed to do both. And, and that should have been the first sign that these projects were actually you know, not great projects. I mean, I've been railing against CSP for a long time. And I think Abengoa is just, you know, they, they, they got into this fat and happy state um, where they were just feeding engineering hours to their engineers without really making sure that the projects were good. And so their entire Brazilian portfolio has been a wash. Um, you know, most of their, um, most of their solar thermal plants are underperforming. Um, and, you know, I think what's going to end up happening is they're going to go through bankruptcy, get rid of a lot of debt, and then there'll probably be a consortium of Spanish banks that come together to save the company because, you know, Spain doesn't want 25,000 engineers out on their ear. 
Yeah. So my understanding was that those that were project financed and can be put under Abengoa yield are going to be much better off and they will continue to produce electricity as they are now. But it's the rest. It's the it's the rest of the company that's failing. So, I mean, do you see the Yield Co. as being a way for them to keep some of those going? And if I'm correct, the Solana plant is owned by mostly by Abengoa Yield. Yeah. And I don't know if their California plant is as well, the Mojave Project. Do you know that, Jigger? Is that also owned by Abengoa Yield? Yeah. I mean, I mean, basically, any plants that were put online before the beginning of 2015 are in... Um, are in Abengoa Yield. I mean, that's basically how they monetize those plants. The challenge with Solana and some of the other plants, though, is that is it so Abengoa Yield Co. has already dropped its share price substantially. Now you've got a $130 million margin loan that Abengoa raised um, with a fund in the UK, um, which now that fund in the UK, it, it was backed by 14% of the shares in Abengoa Yield that Abengoa owned. Now, you know, that fund is going to go buy, you know, basically seize those shares and sell them on the open market. And so Abengoa Yieldco shares will go down even further. So what's going to end up happening is the debt, I think, on Abengoa Yield projects will all probably get paid back, including DOE. I don't see that being at risk, but I think the equity holders of Abengoa Yield absolutely, you know, have some nervous months ahead of them. Yeah, so Jigger, I'm really nervous about the narrative that this creates too. And and Stephen, you alluded to a Solyndra thing and the narrative that somehow these technologies don't work, that this is not a good place to, for us to invest and and try to move our energy system. Um, when when I think that in some of these situations it's a management issue, but I'm also wondering, Jigger, if is it is it management or is it the investor reaction to management? Solyndra was actually a loan that was made for a manufacturing facility. And so when the management team didn't do a good job at Solyndra, then that entire investment was lost because it was a management, um, it was a manufacturing facility, which is what why I've said that we shouldn't be having DOE picking winners and losers on the equity and the, man- and the manufacturing side. But this is a project finance deal. And just like the NRG project um, for BrightSource, in um, California, I think all of these projects are going to underperform over a 20-year period of time um, on the CSP side. And um, But just because they're underperforming doesn't mean they're not producing electricity, like you said, Catherine. And so I think that the loans that DOE provided are probably secure, and they'll probably get 100% of their capital back um, for those loans. It's just that the equity holders, like NRG in that particular example, or Abengoa in this particular example, are going to be the ones that get wiped out. So that's a far better way for DOE to use a loan guarantee program because there's no chance in hell that the CSP projects were going to build, get built without the, the loan guarantees. But with the loan guarantees that got built, that technology has been you know, proving itself, and hopefully new generations of CSP you know, learn from their mistakes and get better. But DOE is in a protected position there, and so they will most likely get all their money back. Catherine, what do you think? Do you think that this is a damaging narrative, or are we past the worst of it now? Well, I, you know, I, I am really concerned if there are a number of companies that are going through difficult times that, you know, politically we don't somehow lose ground because of that. And, you know, we're try- I'm trying to um, make sure that the narrative is that this is a growing space. There are more jobs in solar than any other industry. Um, and yet there, there are going to be bumps in the road. And I think we just have to know how to, you know, how to think about them. I haven't seen many 
mainstream publications latch on to it. I haven't seen the same fascination in coverage. People see this more as like a European issue and less as of a U.S less of a U.S. issue. And I think that reporters who cover this stuff now understand the differences in these loan guarantees, and they know that these uh, projects, these operating power plants are different from a manufacturing facility, as you laid out, Jigger. So those differences have seeped into the conversation, and reporters, mainstream reporters, are a little bit more educated on how they cover this stuff. And I think uh, conservative outlets are well past the Solyndra. Aside from a few obscure blogs, many conservative outlets are are well past the Solyndra narrative and I think focused on other things. Well, I mean, just but just to make sure that, you know, we separate Sun Edison and Abengoa, I do think Abengoa is going to bankruptcy. I mean, there's really no choice there. And Sun Edison just completed this massive deal with J.P. Morgan um, that really simultaneously released $209 million of cash for them and extinguished $578 million of debt from them. So, like, I think Sun Edison is out of the woods on the bankruptcy side, um, whereas Abengoa, I mean, is heading, is heading headlong into bankruptcy. Yeah, and the government of Spain is not ready to bail Abengoa out. This is the really fascinating political story. In Spain, you've got elections coming up on December 20th, and Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy has, um, you know, bailed out the banking industry since 2011. He's put a lot of money into different Spanish regions to help the local economies. He's, uh, you know, he's spent a lot of money to try to beef up the Spanish economy. And right now, I don't think there's a lot of appetite for spending more money to prop up Abengoa. But at the same time, he's promised a lot of jobs. And if Abengoa goes bankrupt, then you've lost 7,000 Spanish jobs right there. So he's under this weird pressure where he spent a lot of money and there's not a lot of appetite for a bailout. But at the same time, he hasn't quite lived up to his uh, promises for job creation. And if there's a massive wave of layoffs from Abengoa, things don't look good. But those likely won't happen before the December 20th elections. Even so, it's a really um, difficult situation to be in. Yeah, I think you'll see a lot of the 7,000 jobs in Spain get saved. I mean, I think Abengoa is going to be forced to stop working on five continents at the same time. And, you know, they're basically shed all of their outside of Spain businesses. And, you know, they'll they'll refocus as just an engineering procurement and construction company, which they've done very well at for decades. It's just I think that this latest growth phase where they were going after all sorts of energy projects, feeding engineering jobs um, back home just, you know, was a bad gambit on their part. We end the show with a quick update from the Paris Climate Talks. I thought that doing the show today would time perfectly with the end of the negotiations, but I, I clearly haven't learned anything from the last 20 years of talks. Countries still have not agreed on the text. Negotiators have asked for an extension into Saturday, so we do not have anything official. But, you know, a lot has happened throughout the last week. Chances are good that something big will come out of the talks. The question is, will the agreement have any teeth? A lot could happen in just the next few hours and the next day, so we'll try not to speculate too much. But, um, Catherine, I'd love to get your take on where we are so far. There is a new draft document. Um, it looks like it does include targets. The big question is, how do you verify those targets? 
Yeah, it's interesting because Lisa Friedman, who was on our show before, did an interview on e and TV today. And, well, I don't think she's slept for two weeks. I mean, those people, those reporters have been up night and day trying to follow this. And she said something like the deal is riddled with political bullet holes. <laughs> so there are all these different things that they have to try to, you know, their fingers trying to put, you know, in in the dike of, of an agreement that's going to actually hold up. One thing that she mentioned that I thought was really positive is that the U.S. did a really smart thing. Secretary Kerry announced committing $800 million toward adaptation. And I think that goes a long way in bringing um, developing countries along to make sure that, you know, everybody is included in this because what you do not want is to have something that all of the majors agree to and then any one country can come in and just bring it all down. And so trying to make sure that everybody is included in that conversation has been sort of the tricky part. But it sounded like uh, Secretary Kerry had done a pretty good job. That's a really good point, Catherine. Remember when we had Alex Epstein from Moral Case for Fossil Fuels on? And, you know, one of the big challenges here is that for those of us who live in, you know, relative um, um, luxury with air conditioning and, you know, access to a car and all the other things, like, you know, we already have built-in adaptation. And, um, you know, for a lot of the folks around the world, they don't. Yeah, another thing that I that I thought was interesting was this group We Mean Business, which is all the world's largest multinationals, and it just sounds like they've had a far greater impact in these conversations than previous cops uh, with business groups. And it sounds like they're trying to put their money where their mouths are too, and trying to make sure that you know everybody's brought along in a way that you know that the corporate world is able to buy into. Yeah, the corporate world has played an unprecedented role in this year's negotiations. The funny thing is, we could have had our conversation with Lisa Friedman two months ago or today. And these negotiations evolve so incrementally. You slowly whittle away the brackets. You start redefining words and phrases. And then it all happens in the last day, the last 24 hours, sometimes the last two hours. And so the draft that we've seen has changed since... The, the draft that's out now has changed since last week, but not a lot. But uh, it'll finally come together tomorrow if the predictions are come true. So, Well, but I, but I do think that it's important to note that, you know, the U.S. joined the high ambition coalition of 100 countries from the rich and developing world. I mean, I really do think that this is going to be a real breakthrough cop. I mean, I've been to the last few and... When, when you think about the role that Todd Stern, I think, has played for the last seven years and, you know, and then he played the same role back into the Clinton administration. And I really do think that he's negotiating a deal that can get done, um, not unlike the clean power plan that EPA did. I mean, that he's not he's not going for the gusto. He is acknowledging the one point five degree claim that the, the, the island nations have. But I think he's he's understanding that, you know, we've got. Um, you know, coal country Democrats, and we've got, you know, climate denying Republicans who basically have to look at this deal and not go to war over it. And I think we're getting close to a, a deal that I think, you know, can can play to the masses of people who see climate change solutions actually as the largest wealth creation opportunity on the planet and, and really get to a no regrets policy that George Schultz has been talking about. Since we've been making a lot of predictions lately, I'll make one prediction about what I do think is going to be in the agreement if it passes. So the developing countries, we're really pushing to revisit targets every 10 years. And I think the U.S. is going to get what it wants and revisit the targets every five years. 
but I think that the U.S. is going to have to cave on transparency around tracking emissions reductions. The developing countries, particularly China and India, have been really hesitant to to push for stringent tracking of carbon reduction emissions. And, you know, as we've seen in China recently, it's, <laughs> it's still like very opaque in that country. But the U.S. is probably going to have to, to cave on that in order to get uh, the ability to revisit targets every five years. That's what yeah. I think will be in the agreement. Well, luckily, we have the clean power plan in place that's going to build in those mechanisms. I think that's exactly right, Catherine. All right. Tell us something we do not know. Catherine, you're up first. Yeah. So this is just building on the cop story, which is um, when I was at this conference, one of the participants on my panel, Brad Swing, who is the director of energy policy for the city of Boston, was absolutely um, floating in the air because Boston won the Smart Cities Award from the C40 Cities. Of the 10 cities that got C40 Cities Awards, Boston got Smart Cities, Washington, D.C. got Green Energy, and New York got Building Energy Efficiency. And evidently, yeah, evidently the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, is just phenomenal and um, played a really strong role throughout the COP, but certainly during these awards was pretty phenomenal. I think there's, um, you know, real correlation between me living in a city and them getting an award. (laughs) <laughs> and evidently me too <laughs> or maybe it's steven uh, i have more modesty <laughs> jigger tell us something we do not know what's your story so the hill is reporting uh that um that there's a coming deal potentially on the solar itc extension this year uh basically i guess the republicans are desperate to get um uh, the oil export ban lifted, and so they are, um, um, you know, pushing uh, to get a deal done this year. The reason they're so desperate is because um, oil producers in the United States have been forced to sell their natural gas liquids and other, you know, uh, pieces uh, that they're getting out of the fracked wells at heavily discounted prices because our refineries really can't process all of it. And so if they can export overseas, they they stand to make 30 to $40 billion of extra profits. And uh, so it seems like there is finally, you know, a deal that could be done. Um, it'll be interesting to see if it gets done. Catherine, yeah, you think it will? I How don't much know. leverage do Dems have if this does happen? Well, I just don't know how much of a sweetener you can even get to get the oil export ban. All the Greens are against it. So I would think that the progressives would not be okay with it. In order to get something, a big, big deal done, you need to get bring, bring both parties along. So, you know, of course, there's a lot of conversations about trying to make sure that you get long-term extensions for wind and solar, but I don't know if that's enough for this one. Uh, this is going to be a dicey one and tricky, so we'll see what happens over the weekend. You know the politics better than I, but Roan at our conference said that he thinks the uh, – Oil export, the lifting of the oil export ban would be the best way to get tax credits extended. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Speaking of the uh, the politics of renewables, um, ALEC, of course, the American Legislative Exchange Council, is really active in pushing measures to cut back on renewable energy standards or kill them altogether to cut funding for electric vehicle charging stations, to cut energy efficiency programs. And ALEC has come under fire for 
its support of very controversial initiatives. And all these corporations have left this conservative lobbying group over the years. It's It's been a really, really strong demise for ALEC over the last three years. Uh, Shell recently left ALEC over differences in climate change and how ALEC approaches climate change. And now American Electric Power this week said that it was going to leave ALEC. Uh, AEP is one of the biggest utilities in the U.S. It owns a lot of transmission lines. It owns 38,000 megawatts of generating capacity around the U.S. And AEP said that they are ditching ALEC because of differences around the clean power plan. And they said that we want to help reduce carbon emissions. We think we can do this. And yet again, another big utility says to the folks fighting this stuff, nope, it can happen. Yeah, they knew in 2009 when cap and trade couldn't get through the full Congress that this was going to happen. That does it for us this week. Hopefully our listeners are more loyal to us than Shell and AEPR to ALEC. Thank you to Huawei for sponsoring us. We're really happy to have their support. We're also happy when we hear from you. If you have a story idea or suggestion or just a general comment, you can send an email to Lacey at greentechmedia.com or to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. As always, you can find show notes and back episodes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Catherine, have a good weekend. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks. You too. Jigger, you as well. Thanks. It's going to be a nail biter for in Paris. Absolutely. Well, we'll have an update next week, and I'll be on the phone with some folks there who are covering it. So hopefully there'll be some good news tomorrow. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.